Hello and welcome to this episode of Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. I'm very excited to be working on several great episodes to close out the season, and I can't wait to share those with you. At the time of recording, we're battling Storm Isha here in Ireland, and we even have a tornado warning, which believe me is highly unusual in Ireland, but only time will tell if it will materialise. By the time you're listening to this episode, this storm, like all storms we face inevitably do, will have passed. Wherever you are, I hope you're safe and that the long night of winter breaks into the soft light of spring sooner rather than later. I mention this just to say that I've done my best to reduce external noise, but you may occasionally hear remnants of the storm in the background of this episode. Thank you for your ongoing understanding and support of this podcast. And with that said, we can begin this episode. This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In November 1970, a woman accompanied by her young child accidentally stumbled into the wrong building, setting off an unprecedented chain of events. What followed was the discovery of one of the worst cases of neglect and abuse that most of the people investigating this case had ever come across. This episode covers the case of Jeannie Wiley, a neglected child locked away in a room by her family in extreme isolation. A silent existence with no external stimulation, no words, no stories, no toys and no outside intervention. For all developmental purposes, Jeannie was a feral child, raised on the periphery of human society. She was an enigma that researchers hoped to unlock, sometimes crossing the line into potentially unethical behaviour. I am your host, Rory Jane Cormack. The theme of this season is captivity, and this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. On the 4th of November 1970, a middle-aged woman paced the corridors of a Temple City building with her young child in tow. She looked lost, unsure as to what her next move should be. The Jackson 5's I'll Be There was the number one song in the US charts. A low-budget double bill of sci-fi horror trog and supernatural horror film Taste the Blood of Dracula jointly topped the US box office. The woman... Irene Wiley was almost blind. Despite being only 50, she looked at least a decade or more older than her true age. She had cataracts in one eye and a detached retina in the other, a combination of a degenerative condition due to neurological damage, 
and possibly the result of damage from ongoing domestic violence from her controlling husband, Clark. With her was her daughter, Susan. Rory Carroll, writing for The Guardian, describes the child as follows, quote, A stooped, withered waif with a curious way of holding up her hands like a rabbit. It's unclear as to whether Irene was attempting to flee from her husband with her daughter or was simply attempting to gain some financial independence so she could eventually escape. Clark had always been a violent and dangerous man, but something had shifted for Irene several weeks earlier after a particularly violent argument. She was attempting to apply for disability benefits for the blind but had inadvertently entered the building next door to those offices. Instead, she found herself in the offices of social services. A social worker approached the mother and child and was shocked to discover that the child was not six or seven years old, as they had assumed, but 13 years old, a teenager. The girl weighed 59 pounds or 26 kilos, was incontinent and couldn't speak. In addition to this, she had difficulty swallowing, could not extend her limbs or focus her eyes on objects. Staff assumed that the child was possibly autistic or had an intellectual disability. The social worker asked their supervisor to intervene and together they questioned Irene about her daughter's condition. They sensed that there was more to the situation than just a disabled child. With their suspicions aroused, they contacted the police, who arrested both parents and made the child a ward of the court. The child was taken to UCLA Children's Hospital for assessment and treatment. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit more about feral children. Feral children are children raised in either isolation or outside of human society from a young age. These can be cases of abuse with children deliberately locked away from the world or accidental separation. There have been cases where children who were unintentionally separated from their families were taken in and cared for by animals. A feral child is often referred to as a wild child. They develop without the basic learned social skills that young children acquire from being in proximity to other people. This can relate to language skills, gross or fine motor skills, or even how they walk and move. For centuries, there have been stories of children raised by dogs, wolves, bears, primates, and other animals. Some of these were simply myth, while others were unfortunately true. In 1672, it was reported that an Irish boy was raised by sheep. Eventually, he was captured and they estimated that his age was 16. For some reason, he was removed from Ireland and taken to Amsterdam, where he attempted to avoid other humans and refused to eat the human food he was offered. There's also evidence that the boy was physically or mentally disabled, although given the time period, the source material is quite sparse on the details. He was put on display for paying audiences in a human zoo. What happened to the boy after he arrived in Amsterdam is unknown. If you're interested in the dark history of human zoos, 
and haven't already listened to the episode covering this practice from earlier in the season, go back and listen to it after this episode. In 1954, Marina Chapman was abducted for ransom from an unnamed village in the Colombian jungle. After some time, her captors inexplicably released her into the jungle. It's estimated that she was four years old when this happened. She was accepted by a group of monkeys and lived with them for approximately four to five years. She regained her language and social skills and grew to marry and have children. In the years since her re-emergence, many have questioned her tale. In 1991, Ukrainian girl Oksana Malaya was eight years old when she was discovered living in a dog kennel. She had been badly neglected by her alcoholic parents and when she was almost three, she crawled into the kennel with several dogs who helped care for her. These dogs accepted her and protected her for almost six years. When she was eventually found, she walked on all fours imitated dog behaviour such as barking and teeth bearing and preferred eating and sleeping on the floor. In terms of language, she could only say yes or no. She had no other verbal skills. She was removed from her parents' care and placed in a foster home. Eventually, Oksana was able to regain language skills and participate in everyday activities. When we think of feral children, we usually think of children raised by animals, away from society. However, many of the issues faced by these kinds of feral children are also mirrored in children that have suffered extreme abuse, isolation and deprivation, even while living amongst other people. The case I'm covering in this episode is perhaps one of the most well-documented cases of a feral child and the impact on their development that this neglect can inflict. Now back to the story. Susan M. Wiley was born on the 18th of April, 1957, in Arcadia, California, to parents Irene and Clark Wiley. Jeannie is the name given to Susan after her rescue to protect her identity. As such, this is the name I will refer to her as for the duration of this episode. Jeannie was the youngest of four children, two of which had died in infancy. Her only surviving sibling, a brother, was five years her senior. When Jeannie was three months old, she was diagnosed with congenital hip dislocation at a pediatric appointment. Developmental hip dysplasia is a relatively common condition in babies. This is basically where the hip joint is loose and can easily dislocate. Treatment can range from wearing a harness or other stabilizing device for an extended period of time or, in extreme cases, even surgery. Jeannie was prescribed a kind of splint, a restrictive hip brace that she wore full-time until she was 11 months old. Wearing this device, while helpful to set the hip joint, can temporarily impact mobility and learning to walk. But for parents, it really is a balancing act, wanting to stabilize the hip joint while temporarily delaying walking. Jeannie began walking later than she would have had she not worn the splint. But Clark interpreted this as evidence that she was, in his words, quote, mentally retarded, end quote. 
Clark had already begun to isolate from the outside world and decided that it wasn't worth putting any effort into Janie's development. Instead, he ordered his wife and son to ignore Janie and not to speak around her. Prior to this, Janie's development had progressed as normal and according to Irene, she babbled even speaking some individual words. Later, Irene recanted this assertion and said that Jeannie had never spoken a word. Researchers working with Jeannie were never able to confirm which version was the truth. Clark Gray Wiley was born in 1901 in Oregon to Judson and Pearl Wiley. His mother Pearl was a brothel owner and was a dominant yet frequently absent presence in his life. His father Judson was reportedly killed by a freak lightning strike and he spent much of his childhood in various orphanages throughout the Pacific Northwest. The source material suggests that Pearl and Judson had given their son a traditionally feminine first name that he despised. We have no record of what that name may have been, but he legally changed his first name to Clark as an adult. Clark worked as a flight mechanic during World War II and later met and married Oklahoma native Irene Oglesby in 1944. The two settled in California. Clark and his previously estranged mother Pearl reconnected later in life. Reports suggest that Clark became fixated on his mother and their relationship, at least from Clark's side, became obsessive. Irene had grown up during the Great Depression, an economic recession spurred on by the Wall Street stock market crash in October 1929. The Great Depression lasted for approximately 10 years and bankrupted many wealthy families. But as so frequently happens, the Great Depression utterly decimated the poor and already marginalized. Irene was born in Oklahoma and saw the devastation of the Dust Bowl firsthand. She had a serious accident resulting in a severe head injury and degenerative vision problems. I'm going to give a short content warning for the next section as it deals with violence against a pregnant woman and abuse and neglect of young children. As always, if you prefer not to hear it, please skip ahead a couple of minutes. Clark was violent and abusive to Irene. He was extremely controlling and isolated her from friends and family. She was forbidden from leaving the house. Clark had a hatred for children and had no wish to have any of his own, although we don't know if he actually took any steps to prevent conception from happening. In 1949, Irene became pregnant with their first child. Clark was furious. He violently beat her throughout the pregnancy. It's reported that he strangled her to the point of unconsciousness near the end of her pregnancy. Irene eventually gave birth to a healthy daughter. However, she died from pneumonia at 10 weeks old. This death may have been prevented. Irene's account states that Clark had become enraged by the baby's crying and had locked her alone in the garage where she became ill and died. It's unclear whether or not this child died at home or was taken to the hospital for treatment. Records are sparse. The following year, Irene gave birth to a son. 
Unfortunately, the baby died two days later due to hemolytic disease of the newborn. This is a blood disorder where the mother and baby have incompatible blood types. It can cause serious complications and even death. Improved screening of the mother's risk in early pregnancy can help identify potential cases and drug therapy can greatly reduce cases in newborns. These interventions weren't as freely available when Irene gave birth in the 1940s. In 1952, Irene gave birth to another son who was also diagnosed with the same condition, but was treated in time and survived. Clark's attitude towards children had not warmed in the intervening years since his first two children had died. He frequently snapped at his wife and child, and Irene was forced to keep her son as silent as possible. This resulted in developmental and linguistic delays that were only addressed when Irene's parents intervened. Their son moved in with his grandparents at age four, but it was to be temporary. By the time that Jeannie was born in 1957, her older brother had returned to live in the family home. Jeannie was also born with hemolytic disease of the newborn and received a blood transfusion soon after birth. Medical professionals don't believe that she suffered any long-lasting damage from this condition. This next section deals with neglect and abuse of a child. In fact, the rest of the episode will be quite difficult to listen to. I understand that this is a very difficult topic and that not everyone has the capacity to deal with it. If that is you and for your own reasons you need to exit the episode at this point, I completely understand. For everyone else who is able to stay, it will be difficult to listen to, but it's important to tell Jeannie's story, particularly since she can't tell us herself. In 1958, when Jeannie was approximately 20 months old, a catastrophic loss instigated what would become Jeannie's long-term confinement. Prior to this, her father Clark had taken a hostile stance towards his children and was increasingly focusing this disdain towards Jeannie. He had become convinced that she had a mental defect due to the delay in her ability to walk unassisted. At a health appointment when she was 11 months old, Jeannie's development was marked as normal but her weight was in the 11th percentile, meaning that she was slightly underweight. This was possibly the beginning of her mistreatment and malnutrition. When she was 14 months old, she attended an appointment with a paediatrician for the first time. The appointment was made due to fever and lung inflammation. The paediatrician stated that they could not fully assess Jeannie due to her illness but suggests that there may be some underlying issue impacting her development. For Clark, this was the confirmation that he had been searching for to confirm that she was, in his words, quote, severely mentally retarded, end quote. In the months following this, Clark began to ignore Jeannie and instructed Irene and her brother John to do the same. Several years earlier, Clark had reconnected with his mother Pearl and the two had mostly reconciled. She felt that Clark was too strict on the children and encouraged him to lead a less rigid life. He didn't take her advice. Instead, he doubled down and became even more insular and abusive. On the 29th of December 1958, 
Pearl was on a walk with her grandson John, who had recently turned six. As the two crossed the street, a pickup truck driving erratically and at speed slammed 77-year-old Pearl to the ground, dragging her body under its wheels. The vehicle sped off, leaving Pearl's mangled body in the middle of the road. She died from her injuries. Six-year-old John Wiley witnessed the entire incident. Clark was overcome with heavy grief. In the years before her death, Clark's singular fixation on his mother had grown, while his paranoia and mistrust of the outside world intensified. His abuse of his family was ongoing. After Pearl's death, Clark tightened his grip on his household like a vice. He quit his job and moved his family into his mother's two-bedroom home on North Golden West Avenue, Arcadia, California. Here, his abuse, now hidden from the world, was amplified. His rules became more and more bizarre. He openly blamed six-year-old John for Pearl's death, as he had been with her when she had been killed. Pearl's bedroom, belongings and car were turned into a kind of shrine. No one was allowed to touch any of her belongings or enter what had been her bedroom. For Jeannie, her world was about to get very, very small. Jeannie was confined to a tiny bedroom at the back of the house, with a tiny window that was mostly blacked out. The door was always closed. Clark crudely constructed a cage out of her crib or cot. He covered the sides with wire mesh. There was also a toilet seat or commode in the room. John and Irene were forbidden from interacting with, speaking to, or around Jeannie. During the day, Jeannie was tied naked to the commode with a harness. At night, she was placed in a straitjacket-type contraption and locked in the crib-turned-cage. Clark, Irene and John all slept in the living room of the small home. Clark was always home, always looming, always a threat. He continued to beat John, Irene and Janie for the slightest infraction and often for no reason at all other than he could. If Jeannie made any noise, Clark would bark or growl at her. His beatings were frequent and often involved makeshift weapons. Eventually, John became Jeannie's sole carer. He was only allowed to feed her milk, cereal and baby food. He was not permitted to speak to or acknowledge Jeannie in any way. It was a suffocating environment for all involved. Jeannie never left the back bedroom. She was never enrolled in school and neighbours were not even aware that the Wileys had a daughter. Andrew Milne, writing for All That's Interesting in 2021, suggests that many experts who treated Jeannie believed that there may have been sexual abuse involved in the case. Later, after her rescue, Jeannie was observed enacting sexually inappropriate behaviours particularly around older men. Jeannie's ongoing malnourishment led authorities to believe that she was fed as little as possible and was frequently denied food. 
According to reports, the person feeding her, usually Irene or John, would spoon her food into her mouth as quickly as possible. If she choked, vomited or otherwise made any sounds, her face was pressed into the food and it's been suggested that she was denied the remainder of her meal. Jeannie was kept in almost total darkness. The only light she saw came from the sliver of uncovered glass at the top of the window in the back bedroom. No one spoke to or around her, so she never heard or developed language. Occasionally, she was allowed to play with plastic containers or a spool of thread. She had no toys. Unusually, Clark kept detailed notes of his abuse and often sat in the shared living room with a shotgun perched on his lap. His family were forced to sit in silence around him. As his delusions increased, he began to predict that Jeannie would die at the age of 12. Surprisingly, he had agreed to allow Irene to seek outside assistance for Jeannie if she lived past this age. This was a promise that he didn't honour. By October 1970, the environment within the Wiley home had deteriorated to such an extent that there were frequent violent altercations between Clark and Irene almost exclusively instigated and escalated by Clark. On the 4th of November, when Irene had mistakenly entered the offices of social services, staff were immediately alerted to a potential case of neglect. They contacted the police and Irene and Clark were both arrested on charges of felony child abuse. John, now 18, had run away from his abusive home several months earlier. Jeannie was made a ward of the court, meaning that the state of California were now responsible for her treatment and care. Psychology professor and therapist David Rigler and head of psychiatry at UCLA Children's Hospital, Howard Hansen, oversaw Jeannie's case. James Kent, a medical doctor, undertook preliminary physical examinations of Jeannie. However, there were large gaps in the information pertaining to Jeannie's background. They also found that her parents were either reluctant to or unable to fill those gaps. In December 1970, just weeks after Jeannie's recovery, Wrigler was awarded a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health to study Jeannie. Linguistics professor Susan Curtis, who was a graduate student working with Jeannie in the early weeks after her discovery, explained why the name Jeannie was selected to protect Susan Wiley's identity. She described the reasoning as follows, saying that, quote, A genie is a creature that comes out of a bottle or whatever, but emerges into human society past childhood. We assume that it really isn't a creature that had a human childhood, end quote. A single photograph of genie was released to the media on the 17th of November, almost two weeks after her discovery. The public were transfixed on the strange girl with the large eyes who couldn't speak. Temple City Social Services staff contacted local police, and Detective Franklin Lee was tasked with investigating the case. Speaking to TLC for a documentary on Jeannie's life, Lee remarked that Jeannie wasn't much bigger than his own daughter Beverly, who had just turned seven. He said of Jeannie that he had, quote, a hard time conceiving of the idea that the child was the age that she was. 
The child obviously had been severely mistreated and she was still in diapers, didn't walk and had no verbal skills at all at that point, end quote. Lee recalled that it was clear that Clark had, quote, turned his back on the world after his mother had been killed, end quote. When he approached the Wiley home, Lee described it as being extremely dark with all of the blinds drawn. He said that there were no toys and no clothes, and that there was nothing in the home that would ever, quote, indicate to you that a child of any age lived there, end quote. Clark and Irene were taken to Temple City Sheriff's Station for interrogation. When Lee and other officers interviewed Irene, she refused to acknowledge her family or the children. Detective Lee said that Clark point-blank refused to speak to the authorities. In fact, Clark wouldn't even acknowledge that he understood the circumstances of his arrest. Clark Wiley's arraignment was scheduled for the 21st of November. However, the previous day, while at home on North Golden West Avenue, he took a 38 revolver and shot himself in the head. His son John found his body. Clark left two suicide notes, one addressed to John and one to the police. The note to authorities stated the following, quote, The world will never understand, end quote. When Irene went to trial, Lawyers argue that she was not responsible for Jeannie's neglect, as Clark's violence and control had also made her a victim. All charges against Irene were subsequently dropped. For the first 13 years of her life, Jeannie led a solitary existence. Her experience of neglect and abuse was one of the most extreme that most of the team involved in her care had ever encountered. Staff at UCLA's Children's Hospital described Jeannie as, quote, the most profoundly damaged child they had ever seen, end quote. Everything that we take for granted in life was a new experience for Jeannie. Tasting food, hearing language and music, playing with toys, feeling the sun on her face, uttering her first words. Dr. James Kent explained that in many ways they looked at Jeannie as a newborn experiencing life for the very first time. He said that he knew that she had many negative memories and experiences from her early life and they wanted to begin exposure to the outside world in a controlled manner that wouldn't overwhelm her. Jeannie had weak gross motor skills and was unsteady on her feet, a result of years of confinement. Although her eyesight was within a normal range, she had difficulty focusing on anything further than 10 feet or 3 metres away. Sadly, researchers theorised that this was the approximate size of the room that had been her prison cell. She had the fine motor skills of a two-year-old. Many of the team working on Jeannie's case viewed her as an opportunity to apply previously untested hypotheses around language acquisition and child development. Susan recalls that Jeannie was mostly silent when she first met her. She seemed reluctant to vocalise, and Curtis and other researchers working with Jeannie theorised that she had been previously beaten for making noise or attempting to communicate. She tells us that it gave the team a chance to address head-on specific hypotheses and notions about human language and the human mind. 
linguist and media critic Noam Chomsky, alongside neurologist and linguist Eric Lenberg, separately proposed the idea of critical periods in child development and language acquisition. It was widely believed that young children could only learn things like language at certain stages in their life. Once they had passed these critical periods, language acquisition, for example, would not be possible. It was believed that Jeannie wouldn't be able to acquire language as she had missed these critical periods in child brain development. Susan Curtis remembers Jeannie as a curious child, extremely fascinated by the world around her. She tells us that Jeannie, quote, wanted to engage people all around her. She was not mentally deficient. Her lights were on, end quote. Susan was heartened by Jeannie's rapid acquisition of words. She says that Jeannie learned a lot of words and had an enormous vocabulary, but cautioned that language is not just a collection of words. She tells us that language is about sentences. Quote, How do you make a sentence? What can be a sentence? What is a sentence? End quote. Jeannie appeared to make significant progress to a point and then became stuck and couldn't move past it. Dr. Bruce D. Perry proposed that Jeannie's brain had developed differently to most other children due to her extreme environment. She had never heard words or had people speaking around her and as such those parts of her brain, those neural systems responsible for speech and language were not stimulated. By January 1971, Jeannie's receptive vocabulary consisted of approximately 15 to 20 individual words, mostly of objects and also her own name. There were only two phrases that she could speak in active vocabulary. These were stop it and no more. Jeannie treated both phrases as individual words, mashing them both together. The linguists working with Jeannie determined that due to her extreme social isolation and neglect, she hadn't developed a first language. What Jeannie lacked in language, she made up for in non-verbal communication. David Riggler describes Jeannie as having a quality that helped her connect with people. He says that she, quote, had a way of reaching out without saying anything. But just somehow, by the kind of look in her eyes, people want to do things for her. End quote. Experts were flown in from around the United States to study and assess Jeannie. Jay Shirley, professor of psychiatry, was one such researcher. He spent several three day stints observing and testing Jeannie, including sleep studies. He didn't find any evidence of autism or brain damage. However, he did discover indications of intellectual disability that was possibly present from birth. Not every member of Jeannie's team agreed with this summation. Susan Curtis vocally disagreed. She argued that for every calendar year that Jeannie had been working with them, she had made a year of developmental progress. She believed that Jeannie had been born with average intelligence, but due to the extreme abuse and isolation, she was, quote, functionally retarded, end quote. Despite Jeannie's issues around language development, 
she reportedly was able to describe her abuse at the hands of her father, Clark Wiley, as follows. Quote, Father hit arm. Big wood. Jeannie cry. Not spot. Father. Hit face. Spit. Father hit big stick. Father is angry. Father hit Jeannie big stick. Father take peace wood hit. Cry. Father make me cry. End quote. There are significant ethical concerns around experimenting on children, as we would all hope there would be. In most cases, no medical professional, scientist or psychiatrist would implement experiments around deliberate deprivation and isolation of young children. The forbidden experiment is a theorized experiment that has never been implemented or studied. Hypothetically, this experiment involves separating a newborn baby from their mother and locking them in a room with minimal interventions, aside from keeping them alive. Starved of love, affection, touch, language and other kinds of mental or physical stimulation, the experiment proposes releasing the child after a set period of time in order to observe their reactions. Aside from the moral and ethical concerns that human social experiments like this would raise, there's no real way to measure the results as each child could potentially react differently to their captivity based on many distinct factors. The closest that researchers have ever come to testing these hypotheses are with feral children who have, intentionally or not, been cut off from human society for any period of time. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the infamous Little Albert experiment. Behavioural psychologist John B. Watson and his graduate student Rosalie Rayner published an article in the February 1920 issue of the Journal of Experimental Psychology. In it, they suggested that it be possible to create fear and induce phobias in an otherwise healthy and emotionally stable child through classical conditioning. Watson took his inspiration from the techniques used by Ivan Pavlov to condition dogs. Watson and Rayner selected a nine-month-old child given the pseudonym Albert. The baby was given a selection of baseline emotional tests and was shown various animals such as rats, rabbits, dogs, monkeys and masks. This was along with other stimuli. Two months later, the experiments began. Albert was placed on a mattress in the middle of a room and allowed to play with a white rat. The duo began their conditioning by hitting a steel bar with a hammer out of Albert's line of sight. They continued to do this any time Albert reached out to touch the animal inevitably causing him to cry and react with fear. Eventually, they removed the external stimuli of the bar and hammer and reintroduced the rat. As predicted, the child reacted with fear any time he saw the creature, associating the animal with a terrifying noise. This fearful reaction began to manifest at the sight of any creature and many of the masks he was shown, including a Santa Claus one. This experiment has since been labelled unethical. Aside from the ethics involved, it's also quite flawed. There is no control subject. And thankfully, the exact conditions created in this experiment can't be repeated to truly test the idea. Now, back to Jeannie's story. Jeannie's case was so rare and the potential for research was not lost on the team looking after her. 
Many have described the situation as being a kind of tug of war between different factions on her care team. Psychiatrists, linguists, medical doctors and teachers, each group had a vested interest in the research potential of Jeannie's case. Jeannie first spent several months in hospital before going into foster care. Jean Butler was one of Jeannie's teachers and occasionally took Jeannie out on day trips and even had her spend the night in her home. Other researchers observed that Butler was becoming more and more possessive of Jeannie. After one sleepover, Butler claimed that Jeannie had contracted rubella and began to restrict access to Jeannie for the rest of the team. Someone reportedly overheard Butler compare herself to Anne Sullivan, the famous teacher who had taught Helen Keller how to communicate. Eventually, Butler was removed from Jeannie's care team, and Jeannie next lived with David Riggler and his family for several months. By 1975, the research funding had run out, and Jeannie was returned to her mother's care. At this time, she had just turned 18. Irene found Jeannie's care to be overwhelming and after several months surrendered Jeannie to state care. She was placed into a succession of foster homes, the first of which was extremely rigid and abusive, causing Jeannie to regress. In 1976, Susan Curtis submitted her dissertation titled Jeannie, a Psycholinguistic Study of a Modern-Day Wild Child which was published as a book the following year. Irene took great offence to the title of the book and to the implications of Clark's abuse of Jeannie. Irene had been in near constant contact with Jeannie's former teacher, Butler, who had by now changed her name. On Butler's insistence, Irene Wiley sued UCLA Children's Hospital along with several of Jeannie's team. She claimed that Jeannie's privacy was violated and that research had been prioritised over Jeannie's welfare. In 1978, Susan Curtis says that she was approached by Irene and asked to become Jeannie's legal guardian. But this potential arrangement was suddenly halted without explanation. Susan said that she, quote, went from being asked to be her guardian to one week later being prevented from seeing her or phoning her, end quote. Some sources suggest that UCLA Children's Hospital and the various researchers settled the case with Irene in 1984, while David Riggler claimed in 1993 that the case was dismissed with prejudice, meaning that it had no merit and couldn't be refiled. Jeannie was moved between foster homes and was eventually settled into a private state facility where she remains to this day. At the time of release, Jeannie is 66 years old. Dr. James Kent described what happened to Jeannie in foster care and later as being, quote, perhaps the worst outcome we could have envisioned, end quote. Critics of Jeannie's care team, of which there have been many, have since suggested that there were several conflicts of interest. They view Jeannie as miraculous wonder to be studied and a kind of tabula rasa, or a blank slate upon which to study exposure to language, relationships and the world. Jeannie was failed by everyone around her, firstly by her family, then by some overzealous researchers on her team, and finally by the state.
Jeannie was an extremely vulnerable individual who had survived some of the worst abuse and deprivation in living history. Yet she didn't receive the ongoing care she required and deserved. Jeannie continues to be a ward of the state. Irene Wiley died in 2003. John Wiley, her son, married and had a daughter, but couldn't escape the trauma of his early life. He last saw Jeannie in 1982 and became estranged from his mother not long after that. He died in 2011 at the age of 59. Curtis tells us that Jeannie, quote, definitely engaged with the world. She could draw you in in ways you would know exactly what she was communicating. End quote. Susan Curtis asks if language is the thing that makes us human and separates us from other animals. She says that it's, quote, possible to know very little language and still be fully human, to love, form relationships and engage with the world. End quote. This podcast was written, researched, produced and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. Please share this episode with anyone you think might enjoy it. It really helps let people know about the podcast. If I can also ask you to please like, rate and review as it really helps let people know about and grow the podcast. See you next time.